Hello there. Welcome to SITREP. SITREP, your defence and foreign affairs magazine from BFBS Radio in central London. I'm Christopher Lee. In the next 60 minutes, why one trident less won't fix the defence budget? How much does the Chancellor want and when? Why not put the Afghanistan budget into homeland security? Why Turkey is delightful? Why this week may be the most historic moment for us all in half a century and more? And what is it about the UK that makes the Calais illegal migrants want to come? There's more, but for the moment, let me tell you who's in the studio from the Limehouse Group of Global Commentators. Hajir Tamarian from University College London, the global analyst. Wonk from that place. I like Wonk. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Marty McCall. You don't even look like a Wonk, but you are. And from the London think tank, Chatham House, Dr. Claire Spencer. Now, let's try this one on you all. This is the big week, wasn't it? Big week mm. in New York. Uh, United <laughs> Nations... Uh, Obama's speech is first at the UN, wasn't it, the General Assembly? Gaddafi, his first speech at the UN, arms control, climate. But what's the big story from, from the United Nations? <laughs> it's the fact that apparently, 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 uh, Obama snubbed for us, Gordon Brown because mm. Gordon <coughs> Brown wanted to meet him and the White House said, no, 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 Hashir, you say for us, of course. For us, apparently, it's not been noticed in the rest of the world. It's just uh, British media who have noticed it. And, of course, I feel angry that it shows Britain to have been humiliated, even though Britain is the biggest ally when it comes to hours of need in Iraq and Afghanistan. Britain right. has got 10,000 troops in Afghanistan, and I think Obama does this for domestic Serb um, Okay, Martin McCauley. <clears throat> I think that uh, Obama uh, remembers Lockerbie and, and uh, uh, releasing al-Maghrebi. And I don't think he will ever forgive... American. So he doesn't want a photo opportunity. And he doesn't want to forgive Brown for that because... Does he mean it, Martin? I think he does, um, because he's got the, uh, all the families, the aggrieved families in the United States, on his back, saying what's going on. And all he can say is basically, uh, they did it I against my will. You. Go on, she's got a different... Well, I, I think he's just... View. Obama's had an extremely busy week. He's been meeting with Middle East leaders and everybody else, and they have another opportunity, I believe. Is it Pittsburgh they're yes. meeting? Today. Uh, today. Today and tomorrow. So, you For know, Gordon Brown is a key G20. player in the G20. Exactly. So, Gordon Brown is a key player in the financial sphere. He wants to, uh, he so wants to say something to him So, aren't they dumb then? in number 10 who thought, Hey, listen, we'll ask five times to see if we can get in to yes. see Barack. What it, well, you, you what's fix this done story. is letting the media get hold of the story. They may well have done it, but they could have kept it a lot quieter than that. Yeah, but you can see what happens is this, is that uh, the guy at the State Department, a dear old Foggy Bottom, I love that expression, Foggy Bottom. That's where, in, in, people who don't know, that's where the State Department is in Washington, D.C. Um, he says, now listen, um, as far as Congress is concerned... Uh, your Gordon is the guy that let out the Lockerbie bomber. Uh, the president wants to get his uh, health care bill through Congress. <clears throat> you get a photograph of the president uh, sort of pressing the flesh with Gordon. No way is there's not going to be criticism. Simple as that. But in the meantime, the prime minister, Gordon Brown, uh, made a promise that he's getting the chiefs of staff to look at the idea of how well defended we'd be with one less um, vanguard uh, submarine with a Trident system. Martin, what's this all well, about? He says that uh, they're going to reduce the number of Trident submarines from four to three, but the number of warheads are to stay the same. Uh, but the minister you for can't the do that. But the but the minister for the armed forces last night on Newsnight uh, seemed to put that in doubt. So uh, the PM is saying one thing. And the minister saying another thing. Uh, and the argument is you can't patrol 
the world's oceans 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, uh, with three submarines, because apparently earlier this year uh, a, a nuclear submarine uh, collided with a French one. So there were only three. So good that navigation, eh? Navigation, so therefore you don't have two. And therefore, GPS, no good. You, know, uh, you would have a, uh, a chink in the deterrent chain. So one has to be re refit all the time. One is being prepared and one is at sea. No, you've and got one at sea uh, on operations all the time. Right. One is in long refit, and then you've got two who are doing AMPs, assistance of maintenance And the fourth one is supposed and, to and, be and, back up. And exercise. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's, um, I'm going to listen to um, uh, the background to this at the moment, but there's just one point here, um, Martin. Trident is <coughs> such an, uh, an emotive subject in the United Kingdom. I wonder if it is elsewhere. From the Russian point of view, I don't think it makes make the slightest difference because they will say, well, you're keeping the same number of warheads, so uh, let's have more concessions. And the, the Russians now are feeling gung-ho. Uh, the Americans have backed mm. off Poland and the Czech Republic, and perhaps they, they think Britain will, in fact, make more concessions to them. OK, let's get the background to this story. Uh, here's the BFBS's own, Jamie Gordon. At the end of the 70s, the late Field Marshal Lord Carver asked the government a question. He said, Trident, what the bloody hell's it for? Many people have debated the question from many angles ever since. Now, almost three decades later, Gordon Brown has told the United Nations he is willing to cut the Trident submarine fleet by a quarter. The Non-Proliferation Treaty, designed to stop countries developing nuclear weapons, is to be debated and reviewed next May, and Gordon Brown's offer is seen as part of the UK's contribution to the process. For his part, President Obama says he's going to try and persuade the Russians to reduce their nuclear warheads, and has committed the US to the same reduction of about five 500 on either side. The British Foreign Secretary David Miliband said that despite the announcement, retaining a deterrent was non-negotiable and that this was a long-term process. We reject unilateral nuclear disarmament for ourselves precisely because the world cannot end up in a situation where responsible powers get rid of their weapons, but the danger of nuclear proliferation by other powers remains. As President Obama said in Prague, this is a very long-term goal which may even outlive uh, his children, not, not just himself. Nick Clegg, the Lib Dem leader, speaking at their annual conference this week in Bournemouth, welcomed the move, but the issue of funding any kind of nuclear arsenal was still a contentious issue. I really do welcome that finally um, the dam has burst on this. I've been saying for months that it's just unrealistic for us to believe that we can uh, foot the £100 billion like-for-like -like replacement costs for Trident over the next 25 years, and I think the strategic context in which that decision is taking place is very different as well. We're not facing Cold War threats in the same way that we were. So I think it's, I think it's a very important development. If finance is the driving force behind Gordon Brown's decision, then the debate on the figures will continue to rage. Greenpeace, on a video on their website, challenged the government's maths. Louise Edge is the group's spokesperson. The figure they usually quote is that for designing and building the new submarines, warheads and infrastructure, and that's around 15 to 20 billion pounds. In reality, over its 30-year lifespan, Trident will cost something like ten times the annual budget of the entire British Army. The Conservative Party backed Trident, although they have said it will form part of an overall review of the defence budget that they plan immediately if they should win the next election. But what's the main reason behind the move? The announcement has to a certain extent been hijacked by those at home wanting to talk about money, but the strategic importance of the statement, against the backdrop of perceived threats from the likes of Iran and North Korea, mean that they're probably both sides of the same coin. This is Jamie Gordon. Gordon for Citrep. Jamie Gordon, thank you very much indeed. Well, on the line from the University of Bradford's Department of Peace Studies, Professor Paul Rogers. Paul, what does this all really mean? 
As far as the Gordon Brown offer is concerned, it is largely political symbolism. It doesn't mean much in that a fourth submarine is to a large extent a spare and uh, given some changes in operations, it will be possible to maintain continuous at-sea deterrence, as it's called, one sub at sea at all times, with three boats. But, and it's a very big but, it is also symbolically quite significant because it's coming with a lot of other things that are going on internationally right across the political spectrum uh, almost a growing recognition that this may be the last chance to really get control of a world which otherwise will proliferate uh, so brown is making an offer um, and it's at that level it has to be treated almost a political initiative rather than a technical initiative. I mean, what's interesting is that no government, neither Conservative nor, nor Labour, would ever have done this publicly a year ago. No, that, that is the real change, uh, and that really is, is quite striking. Uh, what's in some ways even more striking is that the Conservative defence spokesperson, Dr Liam Fox, has more or less accepted that they will go along with this. Uh, and obviously the Lib Dems will go even further. It also comes at a time when there is a, a slow but steady change in public mood. The general public does not seem to think that nuclear weapons are anything like as important as even five or ten years ago. And, of course, you have people from Malcolm Rifkin through to David Owen and over in the States, George Schultz and Henry Kissinger, all saying that we've got to embrace the idea of a nuclear-free world, however long it will take. We've just got to look at it in that sense. The other thing um, that strikes me is, look, forget the number of submarines, let's count warheads. Yes, he's not doing that at all, but the, the word is that, in fact, this is a first step and there may be further offers between now and the start of the Non-Proliferation Treaty Review Conference, which I think is next April or May, and that could include a decrease in warhead numbers. It might even include an offer to consider ending uh, continuous at-sea deterrence, and some people speak even of uh, perhaps cancelling the Trident replacement on a like-for-like -like basis and going for a much smaller replacement, perhaps nuclear-armed cruise missiles on a Stuke-class hunter-killer submarines. Mm. There are a lot of options. I don't think they'll go that far, but I'd be surprised if there are one or two more things offered to try and improve the environment in the next six months. Final thought, um, Paul, and it's probably got nothing to do with it, but I uh, was reading this week about the Indians who'd launched seven satellites in a single mission now, they've had a program since, what, 63, but I was thinking back October 1957, Sputnik, the start of the intercontinental warfare capability. Um, that's how far we've gone. Uh, it's not just the UK, is it? No, it's not just the UK. And then we were dealing with India and Pakistan and to some extent North Korea, obviously Iran. Uh, and the big issue that people still won't talk about, which is dominant in the Middle East, and that is the status of Israel's quite sizable nuclear arsenal. It's all got to come in. Um, we're still in the early stages. But I think it is fair to say that if significant progress isn't made, at least psychologically, at the non-proliferation treaty review next year, then we're going to miss an incredible opportunity. Professor Paul Rogers, thank you very much indeed. Let's talk about Afghanistan, shall we? Uh, the killing goes on. The Taliban and Al-Qaeda must be grinning, mustn't they, from ear to ear <coughs> under their beards after hearing the general commanding in Afghanistan, General Stanley McChrystal, saying that unless he gets a troop surge, then all could be lost. I mean, what strikes me, Martin, there's not been a great cry from President Obama, OK, how many troops do you want and when do you want them? He was very significant in his speech yesterday when he was talking about Afghanistan and Pakistan. He only mentioned Al-Qaeda. He ignored Taliban. 
Ignored or missed? Out. No, ignored. I think deliberately ignored Taliban. In other words, he may be saying we have to switch to uh, all these unmanned aerial vehicles and that type of war and uh, draw in the ground war. Uh, it may be signalling uh, a change in strategy because McChrystal is not going to get the troops that he wants. Yeah, Claire, I mean, I thought that uh, General McChrystal was the... Um you know, the betrayers of, of Afghanistan now. So he comes back and he goes into Washington and says, there you are, there's the plan that will work. Yes, it's embarrassing for Obama if the analysis I've heard from elsewhere, which actually Obama wants to, in time, he hasn't specified a time, but draw down and move out uh, from Afghanistan. To this actually is the Biden, the yeah. plan that's brought forward by his vice president, That's right, Joe but Biden. I mean, it's, it's clear that both Biden and Obama themselves were very keen on McChrystal being the man who actually went in and assessed the situation. So it's their man, as it were, who's come back and said, <coughs> actually, those who say we can't fight this battle with the number of forces we've got are right. We need ten times more. And so uh, I, I think the reason he hasn't responded, frankly, is it's been an extremely busy week, as I said earlier on. You know, he's going, he was going straight into uh, meetings on the Middle East. Yeah, but he had a meeting on the uh, had a meeting early last week in the White House, and there he had the um, uh, that um, Mike Mullen, the chairman Mm. of Joint Chiefs, he had uh, General Jones, Mm. the director of the National Security Agency. Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton was there. Uh, Robert Gates, the Mm. DoD, Mm. and Joe Biden. And what happens at the end of the meeting? So, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Nothing. Not, not sure. I mean, it sounds to well, me it like sounds dithering. Like they're, internally, they're internally divided over this. Well, McChrystal has just denied uh, rumours, reports that there is a rift between him and the White House. Uh, the fact is that... They're since, not saying it's a rift, though, are mm, we? I mean, we're just saying that he said this, and yeah, they said, well, May, we'll, we'll look at it later. May, the US has poured in 30,000, and now it's being said that... McChrystal wants another 40,000 troops and of, of course he's not going to be, to, to be given that um, Obama is saying first we've got to define our strategy then we will decide on numbers. Mm. There are rumours that Biden wants actually to cu- cu- cut back numbers so there are lots of mm. confusing well, I mean, that's, that's the Biden plan is, is to, is to mm. cut back <clears throat> rather than not a, not a rumour. Yes. That's yeah. what he's been saying isn't yeah, it, publicly. I think, I think what you're Martin. looking at is Obama when he comes up for a re-election, the president, what is it, 2012? Yeah. Mm. He will want to be out yes. of Afghanistan and out of Iraq. Mm. And well, then he will say, these are two great foreign policy successes. Yeah. Claire, I mean, it, it's not only he wants to be out. I was looking at some of the public opinion polls, mm. and if you look at, in America, forget ours, look in America, 2008, we had a 56% of the population, if you take all the opinion polls mm. gathered together, saying, yeah, that's where we should be. This early this September... It's gone down to 40s. Well, this is a sign, certainly in the US, that the debate has moved on to healthcare and domestic issues, because I think, you know, a lot of, if you listen to the economic debates, you know, we're in for a second round of unemployment, the crisis is not yet over, and that's where people are fixed. And when you're short of money, and when you hear the kind of figures, including in the British debate that the government borrowed 16 billion, was it 18 billion? I can't remember. 18. 18 billion in the month of August alone, you suddenly start asking yourself, can we afford these foreign ventures, particularly over six years where there's no success, clear success to be gained. Okay. Uh, talking of borrowing 16, 18 billion, as a certain senator once says, soon adds up to a lot of money, didn't it? Um, on the line, the Professor of Applied Economics at Birkbeck College London, Professor Ron Smith. Um, 
Of course, borrowing money uh, brings all the stories about cuts, almost weekly speculation in the British defence budget. When do we actually get to know about this? Um, we might get some indication in the pre-budget report around November, but nobody's going to make any large decisions until after the election. So it's going to be, we're going to wait a while. Uh, MOD has a severe problem. It may need shorter-term action, uh, but I think the really interesting uh, decisions are going to be after the election. Okay, so where does the the proposed strategic defence review uh, fit? Well, assuming after the election, then there'll be a comprehensive spending review over the whole of the government budget and a strategic defence review at the same time. And this actually is usual. Most of the defence reviews have been done in terms of econ- in times of economic crisis, Sandys, Healy, options for change, etc. The 97-8 strategic defence review was very unusual in that it wasn't at a time of economic crisis. So we're going to have a fairly standard uh, problem of the budget and rethinking our strategic uh, objectives at the same time as we've got to cut a lot of money. Do you think that the, I mean, the, the war itself in Afghanistan it introduces an uncertainty that makes it very difficult for any, um, any direct agreement between, say, Treasury and, uh, and the MOD? Well, the traditional way is, has been that there's a defence budget which is set in advance and then operations like Afghanistan are financed off the defence budget. So they come out of the contingency fund. So they spend whatever's required. Now, given Afghanistan has gone on so long and with Iraq, uh, the MOD and the Treasury are negotiating about how to actually handle this so that operations and urgent operational requirements spending is sort of brought into the budget in some way. And in fact, this discussion has just been incredibly complicated. But in principle, uh, operational expenditure should be off the budget and decided quite separately on the basis of combat needs at a particular time. Do you think we all do ourselves a favour if we just forget guessing, trying to second guess what's going to be cut until after the comprehensive spending review at next election? Well, I hope the MOD is not doing that. I hope the MOD is seriously examining all the options because having to make decisions about the cuts uh, on the hoof uh, when they dis- uh, when it happens is probably not good. I would think the MOD and all of us really should be thinking about what the options that are there, that are available. Just one last quick thought. Um, Has the Navy been really smart by getting an agreement on the carriers with such huge cancellation costs that nobody's going to be able to afford to break them? Uh, Yes, perhaps, but even huge cancellation costs can be faced. The uh, last tranche of the Eurofighter was rather different because it involved intergovernmental costs. Uh, If it's just negotiations with the companies, then then there's a a negotiation, um, so it doesn't have such political things. Of course, with the the really expensive bit of the carriers is the F-35s, and there there's going to be an issue with the negotiations with the Americans. But those negotiations have already been quite difficult, uh, in particular about intellectual property rights and whether crucial bits of software will be black box. That's going to be a tough negotiation anyway.
Right, Professor Ron Smith, thank you very much indeed. Right, let's nip across the Middle East now. Um, Claire, um, when we talk about the Middle East, we mean the conflict between Israel and Palestine, don't we? That's the shorthand nowadays. Mm. Um, We've done this before, I want you to do it again. Please explain to our, our audience why it is important, apart from moral reasons, why it's important to the United Kingdom and the region to get a settlement between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Well, we could start with all sorts of international legal and uh, long-standing policy uh, decisions. But if you're looking at the hard nuts and bolts, it's really the cost of this conflict for British, for which you can read also European interests in the region. First and foremost, it divides the region right down the middle. There's no prospect for any of these regional integration plans, whether it's the Euro-Mediterranean initiative or any of these other initiatives that look for free trade zones, democracy promotion. While this conflict carries on, it divides everybody. There's the immediate cost. Um, the, Euro- the European Union uh, collectively and bilaterally contributed a billion euros to just keeping the Palestinians going, as it were, last year, and they will continue to do so uh, in the name of backing a two-state solution and an eventual Palestinian self-sustaining economy. Well, this is just dead money going into a bottomless pit. It keeps things afloat, but it keeps things uh, from actually being resolved in many ways, and some people have begun <coughs> arguing that. And then the third reason is this whole situation situation is unsustainable. You could actually say, well, the Israelis have got what they want. They've built the wall. They've got the Palestinians where they want them. They're not suffering terrorist attacks anymore. But with demographic growth in the region, uh, with everyone having abandoned Gaza now since the war to Hamas and other groups, these situations are not just going to go away behind the fences and walls they've been put in. And so there is a danger of great conflagration and exploitation by others, including Iran. Hajir, how does the rest of the region see it? I am myself not completely convinced, having been a commentator on the Middle East for nearly 35 years, for the BBC, for the Times, I'm not convinced that if there had been no Israel at all, the relationship between Europe and the Middle East, the Arabs uh, and the Iranians, others, would have been easier. I think the region is dysfunctional. I think Claire has just mentioned Mm. um, uh, the... uh, population explosion. When I was growing up in the 1950s as a young student in Iran, we were told with pride that our population was 17 million, now it's 75 million, another 10 million have fled, and Iran is in more crisis, more more people under poverty than ever before. So I think, really, I'm not quite certain what to say. Okay, this is fascinating. You're saying, I mean, we all tend to say, oh, if they fix the middle, uh, fix what's going on, Palestinians, Israel, everything, you're saying it's a dysfunctional area anyway. Very much so. Just look at the, all the numbers of people from the Middle East who want to clamour onto the, the walls to get into Europe. Um, bad government, corruption, poverty. <clears throat> Yeah, Martin, but yet the superpowers, or the ex-superpowers, they really, they're busting the gut to try and get a solution there. So what are they worrying about? Well, the Russians are concerned about uh, fundamentalist Islam. They're afraid that uh, it could uh, seep over... In, which it is already in the Caucasus, South Caucasus, Chechnya and Gushetia. Which was what the original thing about them invading uh, Afghanistan yes, in 1979 about. And if uh, the coalition forces leave Afghanistan, the Russians will then have to man the frontier between Central Asia and Afghanistan. So therefore it's very important to them. But another point is that Hamas is now attacking uh, Egypt. And therefore... Uh, and Egypt is in an enough edge. And it has... a demographic explosion, mm-hmm. the enormous young population with nothing to do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Bibi Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister, I think he sees Obama as weak. And therefore he says, basically, I'll talk and talk and talk, no deal. Okay, talking about a deal, um, I think it's 
they're going to talk about Iran on October the 1st. Talk with Iran. Talk with Iran on October the 1st. That's the Iranians. Special conference includes EU members, Russia and the United States, and mostly Iran. It's taking place in Turkey on the 1st of October. Now, on the line, the editorial director of cross-border information, um, John Marks. John, why Turkey? Uh well, a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, Turkey is um, now sitting it's, um, until next year. It's um, got a seat on the European Security Council, so it has a sort of facilitated role. But much more so, you have the country's geographical position. I think a lot of people are seeing Turkey as a, um, particularly um, under its current government, as, as, a, as a country which they can do business with. The Iranians are members of international groups with Turkey. Uh, they know that they can talk to the Turks. And there's also, I think, a genuine unfolding of a new kind of politics in the region. And I think in that Eurasia area, there's a sort of understanding that the big powers, the big emerging powers, Turkey, uh, the new Iraq even, um, Iran certainly, Syria actually need to work with each other and be seen to be working together. And I get the feeling over the last uh, few, few, few months or a year or so that that in the, in the big traditional powers in the West and, and in Russia and China is also being a bit more understood. So actually the Turks are, are big players. Right. Um, yet the popular image uh, is one of Turkey's mixed relations with the European Union, isn't it? Yes. And that's largely or perhaps partly over Cyprus. It's politics between religious and secular leadership. Um, and so it hasn't got sort of a five-star rating, as most people in Europe would see it. Let's look at it another way. What other country in the Middle East has been able to maintain good relations with the bulk of Arab governments, can talk to the Iranians, yet has as its closest strategic ally over many years, although not actually so much at the moment, the Israelis? Um, Turkey correctly that there is the Cyprus issue and that's a long-running sore. But actually Turkey's big problem with the EU at the moment is the fact that it would like to enter the European Union under a moderate Islamist government and the door has rather been slammed in its face, particularly by, by France and President Sarkozy. Now when Sarkozy came out and said, we don't want, particularly want the Turks, they have to go through this condition, that condition, things they're not going to be able to do. I don't think we were talking Cyprus. I think we were saying, we don't want this very large Muslim country. But I think, looking at it from an international perspective, you have to see Turkey as the ideal place to be talking. Geographically, everyone can get to it. It is physically the, the, the link between Europe and Asia. It has a successful, re-elected and democratic moderate Islamist government, and surely in the Muslim world, this is absolutely uh, the model that, that, that the West, um, the Russians were always so concerned about what's happening on their southern flanks, um, and others should aspire to. And as I said before, you really get a feeling that people, I've talked to people in Iraq, um, there are people in Iran that, who, who are involved in economic relations with the Turks, and others, that there is the start of a, an evolving new Middle Eastern configuration of which the Turks want to be part. So they're, 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 they're an important factor in an evolving strategic situation. And in evolving strategic situations, nothing's more immediately important, perhaps, than the Iranian nuclear issue. It's totally right that Istanbul should be the place. John Marks, thank you very much indeed. Martin? I'm going to say that Turkey, under the uh, Edgen government, 
had deliberately uh, expanded its foreign policy format and is now trying to uh, solve uh, its long-standing uh, acid relationship with Armenia. They're doing their best. They're, they're trying to improve relations with Azerbaijan. And they see themselves as, if you like, the natural leaders. It's the Ottoman Empire again. They, they have this, if you like, internationalist approach. And Edgan is quite determined to push this. And this is one of the reasons why it's taking place in, in Martin, Istanbul. Martin, do you notice they have become professional mediators between Israel and Syria, mm. between the Ira Iraqis and Syria, between the Iranians and the West, between... Mm. Um, I think Turkey is having a very good press, and I don't go along with this pretense that they are achieving much. I think <laughs> it is pretense more than substance. Remember, they are read, led by a man... Hang on, hang on. When you say pretense, do you mean they are pretending or mm. we are well, they, pretending? They probably mean it. They probably mean it, but too many people believe it in here. Remember that in Tur well. Turkey, among us ourselves, Christopher, I mean, uh, <laughs> um, remember that they are led by a man, Rajab Tayyip Erdogan, who is on record as having said, I am willing to wear the robes of a Catholic priest to get into Europe because in Europe, with the stability, with the rule of law, we will be allowed to be better Muslims. So there is a great deal of um, uh, rightful suspicion when it right. comes to Claire, Turkey. Claire, do you, do you share the suspicion of Turkey? No, what I, what I see going on in the Middle East in, in general, and this includes um, states like Saudi Arabia, um, even the Qataris, who are wealthy but very small, but they're, they're trying to get into this mediation game, is a reaction to the overly zealous attempt to impose a zero some game on the Middle East under the Bush administration. In other words, you're either with us, you're against us. This caused huge problems for individual leadership. So they're trying to shape themselves into a situation where they maximise their influence, maximise their links with their neighbours in order to limit this. OK. It's coming up to half past the hour and you're listening to Sitbit, your defence and foreign affairs magazine from BFPS Ready with me, Christopher Lee. Don't forget, you can listen again to Sitrep whenever you want to or podcast by going to bfbs.com forward slash sitrep. Now, it is time coming up to think aloud and still with me in the studio, uh, uh, Hashir Tamoyan, uh, Dr. Martin McCauley and Dr. Claire Spencer. I tell you what, I want to start off with this whole thing that's been going on about a nuclear-free world. Obama wants a nuclear-free world. Uh, Brown wants a nuclear-free world. We all want a nuclear-free world. Kiss yeah, like Kissinger one wants one. Even <laughs> Kissinger wants now. Explain that remark. Now, Kissinger, the great hawk. The great hawk. Well, Dr. Henry. Obviously, if the world were free of nuclear weapons, those countries with strong conventional forces would dominate. The, the advantage of a nuclear weapon for a weak state, such as North Korea, is that you sit at the top table. So therefore, it's natural for the United States to say, as Obama would say, as Kissinger would say, uh, right, uh, let's have a nuclear-free world. Because this it's, goes back mm. to the Baruch plan, I seem to remember. What's that? That goes back to when the Americans invented the bomb. They wanted a plan whereby they could keep the bomb and nobody else could have it, and that made the world a safe place. Uh, and that was the Russians... Still that's the Japanese. Yes, and then, they, yes, and then the Russians uh, exploded a bomb and that went, uh, that went west. Uh, but basically, nuclear weapons will be sought by small states because nuclear weapons now, and, uh, and the bomb, mm. is not all that difficult technically uh, to build. And therefore, a weak, small state... So, 
becomes a powerful state with it's a nuclear all, it's bomb. A, it's all a dream. North Korea is very powerful. I don't see them at the top table being consulted about global matters very no, much. I see them... Not until they throw one down at the South Korea. Well, indeed, they're introduced and they're... Re I mean, the Chinese and Japanese are very concerned about them, as is the US, if and they're I being contained, well. but they're not being offered, you know, special diplomatic favours. If I remember well, economic conditions. Martin, if I remember well, Baruch was a Babylonian priest mm. king who, <laughs> who dreamed of peace on Earth, and I think we've been printed let me go, go not as far back as Baruch and the Babylonian dream priests, but uh, to 1986, October 1986, the meeting between uh, Mr. Gorbachev and Mr. Reagan in Reykjavik. And I remember that uh, Mr. Reagan said, well, we could have a uh, zero, zero option, i.e. get rid of all nuclear weapons. Now, apart from the fact that the then Prime Minister the now Baroness Thatcher, got on the next uh, easy jet to Washington to sandbag, uh, no, sorry, handbag, handbag uh, Mr. Reagan and say, what the hell are you talking about? Because if you're going to do that, then the Chinese would be the superpower. Do you want to do that? I mean, it just shows, isn't it, that it, it is, is it a nonsense? Are we, are we to believe these guys? The, the, the problem is that the vast majority of the people, of people on, the, on this planet, want a nuclear-free uh, world. If you asked, uh, if you polled everyone well, we, in this country... Well, the four of us in here do, but I mean... Well, it's not no, realistic. The logic, the logic is you spend an awful lot of money. I mean, this is the debate around Trident, you know, 20 billion up to 100 million, billion if you, if you believe all the critics, uh, for a deterrent, a deterrent which you are never planning to use. So I've always argued, why don't we have a cardboard cutout version that we send around in a submarine? Because no one's going to be any the wiser, so long as you keep, you know, you stop people from blinking and finding out what's really going on. And it seems to me people who are looking critically at economies, you know, which are suffering, uh, education systems which are not up to scrap as we've heard scratch we've heard in the Middle East you know huge demographic growth and huge demand why are we all going to sit back and watch our government spend money on something which essentially as Martin's described is a status symbol yeah, never to be used that if you don't feel that if I do feel that if you're let's say a in chi living in China? Do you feel that if you're living in North Korea or in Pakistan or in India? Or in Germany where they don't have one? Do they feel their status in the world is diminished? Well, they have got 50, 50 nuclear bombs, the old nu American nuclear bombs still stationed in Germany. But they don't have the button to press. They don't yeah, have a button, but there's, it's, it's, it's uh, dual permission. If you look sort of at stuff. the development of the Chinese Navy at present, and they're spending a lot of money on it, they are developing nuclear submarines with warheads. And they want to, if, if you want, dominate Southeast Asia. In other words, in their thinking, you may think they're 50 years out of date, but the Chinese thing at present is, if we want to be a dominant world power, we have to have a huge submarine fleet. We must have a... Yeah. The air, they're building air, air, air force. It's, I want to say two things. Along Go on. With it. First of all, I think it's good to have ideals. I mean, mm -hmm. ideals... Inspire us to be better people. I'm glad that Germany and Japan, who could have had nuclear weapons within a week if they'd wanted no, to. No, Germany couldn't. Well, no, they're not allowed. Absolute control. They're not that. allowed, but they, they could cheat, you know, like Hitler did. <laughs> they, could have, they could have them within weeks, and they are good, setting we a good example. We took all the scientists example. to America. Secondly, secondly, I want to be a realist. It's a mistake, it's a horrible mistake to say we are not going to have any more psychopaths. One of them has just been hanged, Saddam Hussein. 
Given, but, I mean, we don't say that, you, do we? That we're no, not going to have any more psychopaths. We, well, yes. Well, yes. Um, no, we, I mean, we do actually say that. We say it's possible to have a, nu- a nuclear uh, if, suitcase bomb. Yeah, if the, if the world gives up the responsible powers, as <coughs> Secretary of State Milliband put it, Milliband put it uh, if responsible powers give up such weapons, I'm sure within weeks we will have people like Gaddafi and Ahmadinejad and others another psychopath Saddam Hussein will have them so we've got to do you be think, responsible uh, hang on hang on you can't go around talking uh, calling the president of of Iran and the president of uh, of of Libya a psychopath I didn't say that I said Saddam, you said Saddam Hussein psychopaths was, like them I, I said Saddam Hussein would have loved to have uh, atomic weapons long range missiles and, uh, but we'd the, all love them. The president of no, I wouldn't of, love them. I mean, uh, no, we don't. There we are, are other ways to defend ourselves and make sure that nobody wants Who to attack it? us. Who was it? Was it? was one of your lot. One of your think tankers, Ali Missouri, yeah, <clears throat> who, who reckoned that everybody, every country, should have a nuclear weapon. That was the only way you get true deterrence. So how why, how come the South Africans gave up on it voluntarily? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I'm just saying that's what people. Some well, people if were we could all have one in, in our handbag, you know, but I don't think anyone would feel safer if. What's what's going to happen now, Martin? Is, seriousness here. Uh, something. What's going to happen is that the states which can afford to develop their nuclear weapons will do it, and they are dwindling by the day. I can see only one state in the world today which thinks it can afford a huge nuclear arsenal. That's China. Nobody else could afford uh, developing even more nuclear weapons. And among the rest, the best thing to do is to agree not to use them or expand them, freeze those numbers, and uh, don't let's uh, use them, and then we all be happy. Hang on, because I want to move on to something else in a moment. But can we come back to this original thought that we have heard this week in uh, New York, at the United Nations, world leaders saying, let us get rid of... Uh, nuclear weapons, right? We've heard that. Um, we've heard uh, former uh, Secretary of State uh, Henry Kissinger saying they don't make any sense anymore. But they must know that it is almost unthinkable that you can get rid of nuclear weapons. So why are they telling us it the way they are telling us? Is it a con? Do they believe it? Or is there no option? I thought they were talking... I haven't looked at the speeches in detail, but I thought they were talking about non-proliferation, and this is the problem, even with Gordon Brown's announcement of one less submarine, is that non-proliferation means the ones who've got them will keep them or at least maintain them, and those who haven't got them, there'll be a freeze and they won't be allowed to acquire them. Yeah, you can get rid of one vanguard, but you don't get rid of all the Well, that is the problem with the debate with Iran, is that, you know, they claim, and they haven't yet officially got a weaponisation programme, that they're doing this within the NPT, and with the non-proliferation treaty review coming up next year, we're really going to have to think carefully about the obligations of those who are nuclear capable, which under the NPT, they have agreed not only to you know, stop proliferation, but reduce their arms stocks. And I think there's, this is always the case. There's a dual-edged message going out there. In other words, responsible states, and we all know who they are because they, they sit on the UN Security Council, um, are allowed to keep them as long as they don't increase them and maintain them, and those who are outside aren't allowed them. Well, I think that's where the divisions in the globe, and, that's and why certainly where Iran is testing the limits of this, is saying unofficially, of course, because they do not have a weaponization program, but everyone suspects them of doing just that. And the North Koreas are saying, who are you to decide who are the responsible owners of these weapons? And in so- fact, we have the state where you've got India 
who's developed yeah. it, and said, I'm not joining any Well, treaty. India's been rewarded, we saw under the, the Bush administration. Congratulations <coughs> for unofficially going ahead and testing <coughs> this. I wonder if we can move this on um, from this whole thing that's happened in New York this week and Washington. Uh, I wonder if we're missing something that's, that's much deeper. I wonder if there's a step change in global politics taking place. Um, and so far... As a guest, most commentators have only read the headlines. Now, on the line from University of Southern Utah, where he is Professor of International Politics, Michael Stathis. Michael, one day, one day, may contemporary historians look back at this week as the moment when Obama knew the game was up in Afghanistan and that all was lost in the Middle East, and therefore you're going to have to think again. Well, you know, originally I thought uh, of responding to such a question uh, in terms of two major changes, but uh, this morning we might have to add a third, and uh, it relates to the discussion that uh, 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 you just went through, uh, because uh, President Obama has just addressed uh, a, uh, what, for the fifth or sixth time in history, the heads of state uh, of uh, members of the Security Council uh, talking about specifically nuclear weapons and the problem of uh, proliferation. And uh, the suggestion uh, is that uh, a resolution is going to be passed uh, to uh, address uh, that issue uh, some, sometime soon. And uh, that is one major change. Uh, I, I think that uh, that is something that the, the former president would not have done uh, uh, something of a little bit revolutionary. Now, uh, two other things, of course, that uh, your question relates to, and uh, obviously uh, they, they indicate uh, uh, changes. Uh, maybe not dire changes, but uh, uh, changes nevertheless. I think, one, that uh, things that we are seeing here and uh, in New York this week are indicating that uh, Obama may be considering a major pivot uh, in policy in Afghanistan. Uh, one, uh, uh, perhaps more in touch with reality. Uh, and uh, almost certainly uh, this week uh, marks uh, uh, Obama's personal entry uh, into the uh, Arab-Israeli uh, peace process. Now, whether uh, we're going to see anything enormously successful in any of these three areas, well, that, that of course, will remain to be seen. But um, it, it's interesting to look at. You see, I, get, I still get the impression... Or it's a nag, actually, a nag, nagging feeling that those uh, contemporary historians in, I don't know, 30, 40 years' time will look back at the week beginning 21st September 2009 and they say, was that the week that it dawned on the White House that the United States foreign policy of taking war to your enemies was all done, didn't work anymore? I don't think it was this week. I think it uh, started to take place uh, uh, some weeks ago, maybe uh, uh, some months ago. Uh, um, uh, it has not been well publicized. Uh, I don't think Obama's talked about it very much, but I think there is a change in thinking. I think the beginning of that change came with the replacement of the military commander in Afghanistan uh, with the current commander, and, uh, uh, and now... Uh, 
that commander, the crystal, is seems to be suggesting uh, more of an old-style policy that Obama doesn't seem to be all that comfortable with. I, I think maybe there finally is going to be a final abandonment of what uh, you might call, uh, uh, in military terms, the Bush initiatives uh, uh, in Iraq and certainly in terms of, uh, of Afghanistan. I don't know why, but I think we're in store for something new. We go back to 1946 and you have the, the idea of containment um, emerging as the American basis of foreign policy, I containing communism. And since 46, it always had the impression if somebody got annoyingly sort of close to the American ideal of security, then you went in there to help. Korea, after Korea, Vietnam, which was, you know, as a result of that, the domino theory, etc. I still get the idea that the, um, that the Obama administration may be edging towards this I know, isolationism. Well, I don't think isolationism, let's, let's get back to this notion of, uh, of containment. Uh, and a lot of people, I think, uh, uh, particularly people in 1946 from the Pentagon, uh, misinterpreted what uh, George F. Kennan uh, actually meant by uh, containment. He Who wrote he the original article under the pseudonym yes. X. And later, uh, he did. Uh, the interpretation was uh, uh, simply a form of military containment, which was only part of what Kennan had been talking about. He he suggested a much more flexible and broader notion that, above all, was based on patience and um, uh, basically the uh, prescription that the best thing the United States could do during the early Cold War was to uh, focus on business at home, uh, not uh, becoming uh, overly involved with the things, uh, things over there. And I, I am tempted, uh, and this is always dangerous, I am tempted to think that maybe Obama is thinking in that broader sense of, uh, of containment concerning terrorism, al-Qaeda, maybe even the Taliban, uh, that... Uh, 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 military adjustments uh, to deal with these uh, 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 people may not be uh, the only, may not be the right solution uh, for the long term. Right. Michael, stay on the line. I want to bring in the uh, people in the studio. Um, Claire, this idea, uh, you could develop it, couldn't you? You could say that mm -hmm. we're getting to the period where Obama said America mustn't go to war with its enemies anymore and you have to go to peace with your friends. You have to start developing friendships that you might actually have. Well, this is part of his broader multilateral agenda that somehow that the US, I mean, I think we've all got used to the idea, certainly over the Bush administration period, that there was somehow everyone would sit around, wait for the US template of what was going to happen and then fall into line. You're either with us against us, you're either going to offer <laughs> troops if it involves, as in the case of the UK going into Iraq, if it involves a military invasion, or you're going to get penalised with sanctions if you're on the wrong side of the argument. Now, I think everyone's slightly at sixes and sevens because that template approach to policy is not happening. And I think the expectation and I certainly know in the Middle East circles we're all sitting around and in fact there were leakages in Al Jazeera and I believe somewhere else saying there's a 10-point plan that, you know, the Obama administration is going to launch mm. at the General Assembly or sometime around then, so this week, uh, which will solve the Middle East. You know, it'll, it'll be all-encompassing, it's regional, it'll include Iran, it'll include Israel-Palestine. None of that has come forward and I just want to say that this this seems to be a marking of a new type of multilateralism, which actually... What does that, come on, what's the, what's Well, I'm, I'm about to say, I think it's, it's recognising that 
that overall the balance of power globally is changing. It's not just, as everyone was saying uh, before, that China is somehow replacing the US. It's, it's not as simple as that. It's the idea that individual players who are demanding rights and access to things also have to assume responsibility, responsibility for their own uh, defence in many cases, which is making states like Saudi Arabia uncomfortable, even though they bought the weapons, etc. They rely on the US security guarantee. They've not moved away from any of this yet, but they're setting the terms for saying we are not going to go around being the world's policemen anymore. The European Union will have to step up to the place a lot more um, and everyone individually, regionally will have to play their role. And I think everyone's uncomfortable with that because we've been used to not assuming responsibility elsewhere. Martin? I would see the uh, seminal change being the Truman Doctrine. Uh, Tell us about that. That guaranteed uh, Turkey and Greece, which were under threat from the Soviet Union, from in Greece, the communists, that the United States would come in and help them militarily if necessary. And that was extended, if you like, then with the Eisenhower Doctrine and so on. That was extended to any state which thought or perceived itself to be under threat. Now, uh, the, the, well, the course, whole NATO proposition was like that. Yes. The, an attack the, on one is an attack on all. Yes, the threat was communism. And then by about the 1970s, uh, beginning of the 1980s, communism no longer was the threat. And then there was this hiatus, and then you had this period uh, when communism collapsed, and the, Soviet Union, the, the United States then thought that it was militarily so powerful it could do as it liked. And you go back to Rumsfeld, uh, the Rumsfeld Doctrine, you can intervene where you like, uh, which was far in excess of the Truman Doctrine. And that period may be coming to an end. I think we go in cycles. This period is now coming to an end, where the United States, through Obama, is building consensus. And where if a, a state is attacked, it would only, uh, it perceives itself under threat, it will only receive diplomatic aid and economic aid, but no military aid. Right. Um, Michael, Michael, Michael Stathis, um, I'm just wondering, are, are we actually saying that there is a, a realisation or reluctance in the United States now to do the intervention thing again, like uh, the, I'm not, sh- not sure where they would actually do it, but the, uh, the Iraq, the Afghanistan, sending masses of troops uh, anymore. Two things. I think on the one hand, a couple of comments, I think you're right, that uh, Obama is talking about a greater sense of uh, true uh, cooperation uh, and multilateralism, uh, not so much uh, as the United States simply as a hegemon. Uh, hegemonic power, but uh, one working in true concert. But I think there's a more fundamental point that may be coming out of some things we're hearing in uh, New York this uh, this this week, that uh, maybe uh, American confidence in the idea of uh, uh, sending in the Marines uh, when something happens, or uh, uh, Prime Minister Gladstone sending an army up the Nile, uh, that uh, those are. Those are old policies that need to be reevaluated because they haven't worked. They have not mm. solved the problems that um, seemingly emerged uh, on uh, September 11th, uh, uh, 2001. Uh, sending in the Marines in Afghanistan and, and Iraq uh, uh, did, did not uh, bring closure. They did not uh, 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 solve the issues. There may be other better ways to do it. Now, what those other better ways are, I think, are open to debate and uh, embellishment. But uh, uh, th- there seems to be that 
subtle pivot uh, in terms of uh, the workings of uh, American foreign policy. Michael Stason, thank you very much indeed. Um, I tell you what, can we look at this idea, this this sense of a changing mood, because people are starting to say, well, we're not quite sure what we should think now. Christopher, I would like to start. Clearly, Obama, Barack Obama, belongs to the left, left of center in America. His election Does is... America have a left? Mm. It does, no. yes. It does does it? There's a left wing of the Democratic Party which Democrat. is pushing very hard That's right. for health reform. His election is a, a reaction to the overexertion of America in the world under his predecessor, George yeah. W. Bush. Yeah. And the Americans, first of all, they've got big problems at home. Secondly, um, they now um, have realized, as Mr. Obama himself said, the limitations of American power. It cannot uh, be the only superman in the world and achieve everything. So they are being more realistic, but I, I think I also they are, they are being a bit naive. As someone said, some historian of America, America is not a territorial empire, but an economic empire. It soon will realize that it has interests everywhere. It cannot be an isolationist power. Soon it will have to strike the right balance at the head of the Western world. Mm. But we, we, have to get away from, we have to get away from this idea, as Obama uh, said yesterday very clearly, America cannot solve the problems of the world. I tell you what was inter- can I interrupt the, uh, Martin? What was interesting in his speech at the United Nations? He said, "America does something. The rest of the world says, "Stop doing that." You know, who the hell do you think mm. you are? And then we're not doing it. Is they say, "Why aren't you doing something?" Yes, about why it? did yes. you react? The world sits back. Europe, there's no use saying to the European Union, "You play a, a very important foreign policy role in the world today." The EU has no foreign policy role except talking waffle. Uh, and uh, popping of champagne corks. That's all they, that's all they do. Uh, uh, so therefore, uh, and there's no military. Therefore, uh, it goes back to the United States. The United Nations, if you expect the United Nations to solve a problem, you then uh, look at America and say, where are your troops to put on blueberries and so on? And the whole world, I think, has to change its attitude, as Obama would say. Now, you have to start working. Mm. And the key power here is China. Can you draw China in to participate in but you see, this change, it's not change of policy, but this gradual sort of uncertainty, this rethinking. Mm. I mean, the, the, the Obama-McChrystal thing is a perfect example where McChrystal goes in and says, this is what you need, uh, uh, Mr. President. Mr. President says, I'll think about it. Now, that's not what anybody thought was going to happen. Can I give you something? And, um, um, and it was from uh, the Defence Secretary, Bob Ainsworth, uh, last week at King's. Were you there at King's College? Did you listen no. to him? No, you weren't there. I don't know why you didn't go. Anyway. I was in the Hague. Oh. I got let off. Not the George. Um, <laughs> listen, here we go. This is what part of what uh, the Defence Secretary Bob Ainsworth said. He said, failure in Afghanistan would have profound consequences for our national security. Okay, we've, we've heard that one before, okay? And then it would embolden those who preach extremist violence and increase the threat of terrorist attacks here at home. It would undermine the NATO alliance, which has been the bedrock of Britain's defence for the last 60 years. It would leave the United Kingdom and her armed forces with diminished support for action in the future and a tarnished reputation. Now, he was saying that to some extent because nobody has laid out, and this is the Mm. difficulty, nobody has been as laid out in harsh terms, why are we doing something like Afghanistan? And isn't that what Obama, 
and the others are actually saying, we're not quite sure yes. why we're there. It's mission creep. It's I mean, mission they, they creep, which even got doing. to the White House. They knew what they were doing in 2001, and mm. the big mistake was getting deviated and distracted in 2003 into Iraq, yeah. uh, whatever the merits of Iraq were, but it was nothing to do with the global war on terror, and certainly at the beginning wasn't presented as such. Then, obviously, because of the neglect, and I was in Afghanistan in 2004, and the imbalance then was the lack of coherent and coordinated development assistance. In other words, if they'd done more on the economics and more on setting up institutions, etc., and had a clearer policy on the warlords, etc., then this creeping Talibanization wouldn't have happened and we certainly wouldn't have sent in a British mission on the grounds that it was a peace enforcement, I think, peacekeeping force, rather than a fighting unit that it's, it's become now. It's been sucked into this conflict. So that's the British side of it. So I think all these excuses, and I'm afraid they, they are, because the, the threat, the terrorist threat within the UK is very UK-based and if it's linked with anywhere overseas, it's linked with Pakistan, we're in the wrong place. Anybody hear, uh, or read rather, um, what Bob Ainsworth, the Defence Secretary, was saying, quoted saying in the Times this morning, he says that the the British public's not told about it. Well, I mean, come on, Gov, you're the person who's supposed to tell us. Well, they're not not gullible, they know what's happened. There's also the point that um, it's not, uh, nobody knows whether a bridge was drawn from Afghanistan uh, and, and Iraq, well, Britain's out of Iraq, would in fact uh, increase the terrorist threat. Uh, everyone's guessing uh, the threat of terrorist attacks here at home will increase. There's, the, there's no proof. There's no proof for that. Uh, it's an argument for staying there. In fact, you could argue that if you say to Muslims here, uh, why are you so angry? We've left uh, Afghanistan, we've left Iraq. Uh, and then you say to they will then say yes, but what, what about the Palestinian problem? Well, uh, uh, what do you expect us to do? You know why why are you carrying out terrorist attacks here? Because yes. there's a, an identity clash. I tell you why. Um, but I'm glad we got back to Afghanistan. Afghanistan really cannot be separated from Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan on the border. It's not just one country, is it? Mm. We're talking about on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. There is a black hole called Pashtunistan or Pakhtunistan or Patan, whatever you call it, northwest frontier. Mm. This is one people, and as long as that border remains porous, as long as Pakistan's social problems, <coughs> particularly due to two things, population explosion and this rise of literacy which makes Islamic awareness and its past rivalry with the West more mm. alive in the minds of people. These two factors are, are going to make that part more difficult. But I think it is winnable. I think that all this talk about the Taliban winning has got one good effect that it concentrates our minds that uh, to be yes, more but, serious but about this. I just want to move on to something else. But this I can mean, be won. The, the whole point is that even with these arguments yeah. soundly produced, there is rethinking in the White House. And if there's rethinking in the White House, we in the United Kingdom are also going to have to rethink because we go along with Nanny. But I shall anticipate the result of that rethinking. The Americans cannot give up. Okay. Listen, I want to move on to something else. Um, Did you also... Because we've only got a couple of minutes left. Mm. We're going to do this ages ago. Um, Everybody knows about the jungle, don't they? Yes. Uh, uh, I was... 
law and order in Calais, a sort of British preoccupation uh, for since the 12th century or 13th century. The French police have destroyed the jungle. That's the name given to the mm-hmm. camp set up by would-be illegal migrants uh, near the port of Calais. 1,300 of them there, they want to come to the United Kingdom. Tell me why they want because to come they, to the United Kingdom. They could then Kingdom. live in social security, paid by the taxpayer, and have a higher standard of living than they could ever have in their home country. It's an economic wave of migrants. Do you think it's as simple well, as that? Well, some of them are very... Claire? They're not going to just sit here and do nothing. Some of them are very qualified. They're doctors, etc. They've been trained but in why English. why here? They, well, I mean, they've they been speak, to Greece, They speak, they speak Italy, English. I think the French France. system isn't attractive to them. They don't speak French. If they, they wanted to find a way and creep into France, Also, they've France, been they listening would. to the BBC World Service saying, come, we all love you, come here. Have well, we heard that on the World Service? I think the World Service says <laughs> that. No, 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 not since you But they certainly have a very effective um, dialogue. Um, um, can I just offer one sort of thought, which ties in with the rethinking, perhaps, in, in Washington? What you're saying is that special characteristic of the United Kingdom that we're supposed to be protecting, which Bob Ainsworth was talking about, isn't it? Isn't that what it's all about, Hashir? Well, earlier I hinted at on identity clashes. In my limited knowledge of history, whenever you transplant large populations of one identity into another, there is always trouble. Yes, okay. if you look at the Hittite Empire... We don't want to look at the Hittite <laughs> Empire because we're going. That's it for this week. My thanks to Claire Spencer, Hashir to mine, and to Martin McCauley. Join us here on SITREP next Thursday at 4 o'clock UK time. Now for me, Christopher Lee, goodbye. And don't forget, Mary's in the hut.